As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures, deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Your testimonies are our delight, and so by Christ's spirit may they be our counselors now. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and after taking a brief break to think about some things about the incarnation of our Lord and for the new year, we want to return to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 6. Mark is the second book of the New Testament uh, between the books of Matthew and Luke. Uh, Many of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1069. And so we want to take up our reading of Mark's gospel at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And we want to read through the first part of verse 6. The second part of verse 6 really belongs to the next section. So we want to uh, consider that next time, Lord willing. So Mark chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 1 and reading through verse 6. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, as we return to the book of Mark, we maybe need to reorient our minds to where we've gone in the book, but this has been a section of the book that's been a wonderful and delightful triumph of Jesus over the many things that face his people in the world. Um, beginning at the end of chapter 4, there's been a series of stories about how Jesus has triumphed over the enemies that face his people. Um, it began with Jesus calming the deadly storm that threatened the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Then he drove out an army of demons. Uh, Then he healed the destroying diseases that threatened the lives of people. He even raises the dead. It's a story of triumph on triumph. Jesus is growing greater and greater. And as we think about this, and as the story moves on, moves past the kind of difficulties that we saw earlier in the book, we can make the mistake of thinking that these things are just going to get better every day and every way in the ministry of Jesus. He's just going to go from one success, success to the next, and that's just the way the church is going to work in the world, that it just gets better and better all the time. And so this is kind of a reminder of the challenges that the gospel faces when Jesus comes home. We might expect that Jesus coming to his hometown might experience more than he's experienced where he was a stranger. Uh, that they might be more inclined to listen, that there might be more great work done in his ministry. But what do we actually find in this text? We find unbelief, 
We find people taking offense at Jesus. And by the end of it, Jesus is simply amazed by the people who are unbelieving. Um, It's a reminder to us of the fact that for all the successes God's kingdom and his gospel will have in this world, it also still faces unbelief and opposition. I like how one commentator put it, the triumphal progress of Jesus through the recent part of the narrative is in danger of leaving the reader with a false security. Forgetting the divided responses pictured in chapters 2 and 3, the reader may begin to feel there is something almost automatic about the success of Jesus. We are reminded here that this cannot be taken for granted. If faith has been the key to at least some of the preceding miracles of deliverance, what is to be expected where faith is absent? And really that's the sad reality of this story. Uh, What happens where faith is absent? Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus is received the worst by the people who know him best. Um, Where they know him best, they do not believe in him. Um, And so what can we take from this passage? What does the Holy Spirit mean to give us by way of instruction here? Um, Well, as we consider this story, I think we see first the challenge of the ordinary. Uh, The challenge of the ordinary is presented to us in the ministry of the gospel. Secondly, the consequences of unbelief are there for us to see in all of their starkness. But finally, we want to take away the comfort of the few. Uh, There is comfort to be drawn from this passage as well. So that's how we want to think about this together, the challenge of the ordinary consequences of unbelief, and the comfort of the few. This story comes in the context of Jesus coming home. That's what we're told. Jesus goes from where he's been to back to his hometown. Uh, We know from chapter 1 of Mark's gospel that Jesus' hometown is the town of Nazareth. It's still in the general region of Galilee, but where, where he has been at Capernaum, which is right by the sea, He's from Nazareth, about 25 miles southwest of, of, of Capernaum. Um, it's more in the hill country. It's away from uh, the, the, the sea. And so that's where he goes with his disciples. And he does what he's done in other places like Capernaum. We find him coming on the Sabbath to the synagogue, and he teaches there. Um, he does there what he's done in other places. And so it's a sign that the rulers of the synagogue clearly think he's someone of significance, that he's fit to teach. You don't just invite anyone to stand up and talk in the synagogue to a large congregation of people. We're told that many were gathered there. They, they clearly think he's someone of significance, someone who is deserving of this role, and he teaches as he's taught elsewhere. And we find the same reaction to his teaching that we found in other places. As he teaches, there is this extraordinary reaction to what he teaches. The people who hear him are astonished. And that should ring out in our ears because almost the exact same thing happened in Capernaum. Uh, When he came there, this is the second time Mark has told us a story of Jesus coming into a synagogue, teaching on the Sabbath, and leaving the people astonished. That very same thing happened um, in Capernaum in chapter 1. He came there, and that was the same thing. And do you remember there why they were astonished? Mark told us they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
I think Mark means to tell us they're astonished for the same reason the people in Capernaum were astonished. That when they heard him teach, this was not the kind of teaching they were accustomed to. Where someone would get up and read the law and the prophets and would then begin to explain what the rabbis had traditionally taught these things to mean. Jesus does not stand up and speak like a scribe. He speaks as one who speaks with authority. He speaks more like a prophet, more like someone who comes and says, Thus says the Lord. Uh, his, his authority is astonishing. The way he speaks is astonishing. And we don't want to forget, as we saw in chapter 1, what is the theme of his message? What is the way he speaks, when he speaks, with this authority from God? What does he talk about? He proclaims the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That was the theme of his ministry that Mark had told us. That is what we can expect he was coming to do, coming to proclaim. That was the message he proclaimed. And wherever he had proclaimed it, and wherever people were astonished by the things he said, you remember how they were left sort of saying, who is this that speaks like this? What kind of teaching is this? What kind of authority is this? Just who is this? And the questions they begin to ask sound that way in Nazareth. But they think they know the answers to all these questions. They don't ask who is this as people who are sort of astonished and amazed. They ask it as sort of a way of saying, we know exactly who this guy is. We know exactly where this teaching has come from. We know he's not seminary educated. We know he's spent no time in a rabbinical school. This is the guy who's worked out of the carpenter shop down the road for the last 30 years of his life. Now, they're insulting to carpenters, I think. I don't mean to be insulting to carpenters. But what they're saying is, we know exactly who this guy is. Isn't this the carpenter? I've taken wagon wheels to have them fixed to his shop. He's come over to my house to build a table. He came over to help us frame the house when we built it in the first place. I know exactly who he is. He's a carpenter. He's not trained to do this. He comes from an ordinary calling. They had known him for a long time. As best as we can tell, Jesus' public ministry did not begin until he was about 30 years old. This is a place he spent most of his life. Probably there were people there in the synagogue of these many who had had Jesus come over as a little kid with his father, the carpenter, to watch him and work with him doing things. Probably Joseph is dead by this point, so he probably took over the family business and came as a carpenter. And that's where the disconnect is for so many of these people. I know exactly who this guy is. I know who he is. He's the guy you call when you need a new handle for your axe. He's not the guy you call to listen to about the kingdom of God. Or who tells you what you need to do to repent and believe. He's certainly not the guy you seek out to heal the sick or raise the dead. He's a carpenter. We know what his training is. We know who he is. 
We know his family. We know he has an ordinary job and he comes from an ordinary family. You know, some people have tried to draw some kind of insult out of being referred to as Mary's child, as if they're somehow referring to, you know, maybe the fact that people thought he might be illegitimate as a child. I don't think they're saying that. I think it's familiarity. This is Mary's kid, right, down the street. They live in the second house on Fifth Street. We know them. We know their kids. We know all of his brothers. His brothers are here. His sisters are here. His mother's here. Nice family. But they don't have any special theological training. There's no reason that some kind of special power should come from them. And as they think this, they, their, their essential thrust is to say, he's just like us. I'm a common worker, he's a common worker. I'm an ordinary person, he's an ordinary person. Why am I sitting here listening to him? He's going to tell me what I need to do to be ready to meet the Lord when he's coming? He's the one who knows that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? Just who does he think he is? We know him. The rubes in Capernaum may be impressed by him, but we know exactly who he is. And they take offense at him. That's how this develops in their mind. And you see what happens here is that everything extraordinary about Jesus that astonishes them is drowned out by the ordinary. We heard him and his teaching was astonishing, but we can't see the astonishing things he says, the extraordinary things about him, because they're crowded out by the ordinary. They're so sure they know who he is that they can't listen to what he says. And so they say, why should we listen to you? You're just like us. Why does the Bible record this for us? Why does the Holy Spirit think it's important for us to include this? Why was this important in God's providential plan for this to happen? First, it's important for the preparation of his 12 disciples who are with him. Right? Verse 1 makes the point that he's there with his disciples. Um, and right after this passage, starting in chapter 6, verse 7, they're going to be sent out to be ministers. And they need to be prepared for how the gospel will be received. Even when they do works of power. Even when their teaching is astonishing. There are going to be people who say, these guys, the guys you go buy fish from down at Capernaum, these are the guys that are going to tell us what's what. Uh, They need this this preparation to know that not all is triumph and glory in the ministry. That there's a lot of unbelief and opposition that you meet. They need to be prepared for this. If Jesus was listened to the least by the people who know him best, His disciples should not be surprised when people won't listen to them. If sometimes even the people that are nearest and dearest to them won't listen to them. These are the people at Jesus' own hometown, his own relatives, and even his own household who won't listen to him. This is important for the ministers of 
the 12 as they go out when the church is small to remember that the church is going to meet unbelief and opposition in the world. It's still important for ministers today. There are, many, there are several men here who are preparing for ministry and several men here who are engaged in ministry, and it's good for us to be reminded uh, that we face unbelief and opposition in the world, sometimes from those who are nearest and dearest to us, the friends we've grown up with, the family we live with, the relatives who know us best, is sometimes where the gospel comes the least. And this passage is intended to keep us from despair. To remember the same thing happened to Jesus because we know our own failings. Right? We know that our sermons are not perfect. I mean, this one is, but many times our sermons aren't perfect. Right? They're not always perfectly preached. They're not perfectly presented. Our lives are certainly not perfect. Um, our wisdom is imperfect. Our power is meager. And here we're reminded there was one who preached perfectly, who lived perfectly, whose wisdom was perfect, whose power was unlimited, and there were people who still did not believe him, who could not see past the ordinariness of a human being speaking to them about divine things. It's important for ministers and future ministers to remember. It's important for congregation members to remember as they go out and evangelize their friends and their neighbors. As they seek to teach and find that there are people in their hometowns and in their relatives and in their own households who will not believe. Who cannot see past the ordinary to see the extraordinary things that the gospel offers. It's to remind us that the servants are not greater than the master. If this happened to the Lord, it will happen to us. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in its extraordinary glory, there will be people who will seize on what is ordinary in us as a reason to take offense. Right? We've all experienced that, people near and dear to us who not only don't agree with what we say, but are offended that we say it to them. Um, and it's good for us to know that Jesus experienced that as well. And that unbelief has to do with those who remain unbelieving. You know, J.C. Ryle, I think, put it helpfully. He said, it's neither the lack of evidence nor the difficulties of Christian doctrine that make men unbelievers. It is the lack of a will to believe. And that challenge was there even for the Lord who was perfect in the way he conducted his life in the way he conducted his ministry. But that's the challenge of the ordinary, of ordinary people proclaiming extraordinary things in the name of the Lord. And the consequences of that unbelief are, are difficult, right? That's what we see in this passage. The consequences of unbelief are, are terrible, right? It causes us first to dishonor those who should be honored, Right? Jesus quotes a proverb that was well known in his time. Right? A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own town and among his relatives and among his own household. Um, a prophet's everywhere honored except by the people who know him best. 
remember reading a novel once where they talked about a professor and said he was called a distinguishing visiting professor. And they called him a distinguishing visiting professor because he was only there for a year or two because it's hard to remain distinguished around people who know you. Um, it was his way of saying that, that proverb that was familiar in Jesus' time and is still familiar in ours, familiarity breeds contempt. But Jesus is one who is dishonored by exactly the people who should have known best to honor him. Because the very people who would have said, you know, he's the guy you see to fix your axe or to fix your wagon wheel or to help you frame your house, build you a table. If you had talked to them, they would have said, you know, he always did the work he promised to do. And he always delivered it when he'd promised to deliver it. And he always did what he said he would do. And he always charged what he said he would charge. He was honest in the way he went about being a carpenter. These are the people that should have known him best, that had the privileges of living and growing up around the Son of God. Right? If anywhere he should have been honored, it should have been at home. That's the place that should have acknowledged him the most and the best. Because they knew him. Again, J.C. Rowell is helpful on this. He says, Never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years the Son of God resided in this town and went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. They saw the Son of God as a boy and as a teenager, and as a man, and as a son, and as a brother, and as a carpenter, and as a neighbor, and as a fellow church member. And they saw how he lived in blameless, perfect love for God and for his neighbor every day of the 30 years of that life, and they still thought nothing of him. He should have been honored by these people. And Calvin said, it's truly extraordinary that a prophet of God whom others warmly receive as a newly arrived stranger should be despised in the place where he grew up. He should have been honored there, if anywhere. And he was dishonored. What a serious consequence of unbelief. And this proverb became popular, not just as it applies in this instance to Jesus, but this was a proverb that would have really applied to all of Israel. Because that's how they had always treated the prophets. When the prophets came to them in God's name, that's always what they had experienced, dishonor. And so often the prophets of Israel were honored by Gentiles better than they were their own people. That's one of the terrible consequences of unbelief. It causes us to dishonor the people we should honor the most. It also robs us of seeing God's glory. That's one of the serious consequences of unbelief. It robs us of seeing God's glory. It's a remarkable thing Mark says in verse 5 when he says, and he could do no mighty work there. Right, He doesn't say Jesus didn't do any mighty work there. He says he could not do any mighty work there. 
And that should, that should be reason for us to pause. Why can't Jesus do good work here? Is it because there's something lacking in his ability? He has power other places. He didn't have power there. No, what has he reminded us time and time again in these great works that he does? Where do they come from? Your faith has made you well. It's not a lack of ability that causes Jesus to be unable to do any mighty work here. It's a lack of faith among these people. There's no mighty work because there's no faith. A lack of mighty work is down to the missing faith that Jesus finds in this hometown. That's a sad consequence of unbelief. You rob yourself of experiencing the glory of God. You don't see the mighty power. And the last consequence of unbelief that we see here is that it amazes the Savior. That's another remarkable thing that we read in verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. A lot of people marvel in the book of Mark. This is the only time Jesus marvels. Lots of times people marvel at the things they see. They marveled when this demon-possessed man who'd been possessed by a legion of demons came proclaiming what God had done for him out of his mercy. People marveled. This guy who was out of his mind, who was possessed by demons, is now normal and talking to us about the Lord who saved him. This Jesus from Nazareth, they marveled at him. This is the only time Jesus marvels, and it's not a good thing. He's amazed that they don't believe. He's amazed at their unbelief. Because they were the people who had been privileged the most by his father. To have grown up and see the son of God. The exact imprint of the nature of his father around them. And despite all of those privileges, they didn't believe. It leaves Jesus amazed. And that's a warning to all of us who grow up with the privileges of knowing the Lord. Um, You young people who grow up hearing, you little boys and girls who grow up hearing the good news of the gospel all the time. Um, You might not understand that it's a privilege to come to church. Especially sometimes when the minister goes on and on in his prayers or on and on in his sermons. It might not always feel like a privilege to sit where you're sitting now. I know that because I was there once. But I'm old enough to tell you now it was a privilege to hear the gospel preached. To sit and hear the Lord speak to me twice on the Lord's Day. To see and then participate in the sacraments to hear the good news, to constantly hear the voice of God speaking to me. There's no privilege greater than growing up in the church, and there's no worse kind of unbelief than to take all that privilege and turn away from it, to treat it as a common thing. It will leave Jesus amazed at your unbelief if you do it. That someone who can be so privileged can treat it that way. And there are many of us here who grew up 
not knowing the Lord and not hearing the gospel for a long time and finally hearing the voice of the Lord speak and who would say to you, I would have given anything to have grown up that way. I would have given anything to not spend that 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years not knowing the Lord, not walking without Him. We don't want to leave the Lord amazed at our unbelief. That's the consistent message of the scripture. Don't be disbelieving. Believe. And why does the Lord want you to believe? So you would have life in his name. So you would find forgiveness of sins. So that you would find eternal life. So that you would find rest for your souls. And he's the only one who can provide it. We don't want to deal with the terrible consequences of unbelief. And that's a warning to all of us, young or old, but not to end up that way. But there's also comfort to be drawn from this passage. I know that this is heavy, but there is comfort to be drawn. There's comfort to be drawn from the few in this passage. From the few. Mark does not say Jesus could no, do no mighty work at all. He says he could do no mighty work except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And that's where we see the comfort of the few. That even in this place where the large number, the many people who gathered, took offense at him, there were a few who didn't. There were a few upon whom he laid his hands and healed them. And again, what has Mark reminded us of over and over again? What does Jesus remind people of over and over again when he heals them? It's your faith that's made you well. It's your faith that's made you well. He doesn't do mighty work there where there's unbelief because when you do mighty work in the face of unbelief, it just hardens people in their sin. We've been considering in our video devotionals during the week the exodus and all of the mighty work that was done to Pharaoh just hardened him in his unbelief. It wouldn't do any good to do mighty works before unbelievers. But there is mighty work that he does. And it's mighty work for the people he does it to who are sick and who are healed. And it's a testimony that even in this place, which is so barren spiritually, there still are a few who believe. In this place where there is a lack of faith and a consequent lack of power, there are people who do experience healing and who testify to a faithful few, even in that hardest of places. And that he did a mighty work for them. That he laid his hands on them and made them well. And this is a reminder to ministers who labor in hard places. Ministers who labor in barren spiritual wastelands. Um, People who live in families where they're the only Christian and are constantly trying to share the gospel with the people around them. Not to despise the day of small things. That even in this place where there was so much unbelief by the people who should have known Jesus the best, there were still a few who did believe. There were a faithful few there. Even in a difficult mission field or in a small circle of friends or a hostile family to the things of the Lord who are offended, there may be a few who will see the mighty work of the Lord. There were a few there who did believe and who experienced the extraordinary glory and power of God. 
And we know that there were a few there who might have been unbelieving at this time, but later came to faith. Right, the crowd draws our attention to Moses, not Moses, Mary, his brothers. We know that they had come in chapter 3 trying to bring Jesus home because they thought he was out of his mind. We know that they were, for a time, unbelieving. But what do we know about them? We know things about three of them for certain. We know that Mary came to believe. His mother came to believe. To believe in Jesus was there with him at his cross being provided for by her Lord. Mary came to believe. We're told about his brother James in this passage. Uh, James was the oldest of Jesus' stepbrothers, if you want to put it that way. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's Jesus' brother James that's presiding over the Acts over the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. He became a pillar of the church. He's the likely author of the book of James, as best as we can tell. And how does he introduce himself at the beginning of that book? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He might have thought his brother was out of his mind at this point. He later came to believe in his name. Another one of his brothers here is Judas, who we know better as Jude, who also wrote a book of the Bible, the epistle of Jude. And how does he introduce himself at the beginning of that book? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. He may not have believed now, but he came to faith. And he came to call himself a servant of his older brother who he acknowledged to be not just his brother, but Lord and Christ. It was the Holy Spirit who inspired James, Jude's brother James, the brother of Jesus, the servant of the Lord, to pen the words that we heard as our blessing this morning. It's Jude who spoke those words under the influence of the Holy Spirit and said to us, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There were a few here who didn't believe then but came to believe. That should be an encouragement for us as well when we face unbelief to know that there are those few that come in. And we long for those great revivals like we see at Pentecost where thousands turn to the Lord in a day, but we know that the ordinary way that God builds His church is by a few at a time sometimes over long years of ministry, sometimes after long years of praying and opportunities taken throughout life to reach out to the ones we love and to the friends we're around to proclaim the gospel. And so this is a call for us not to despair, not to give up, not to despair of our unbelieving friends and neighbors those we long and love to see come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage should give us comfort that the Lord can still call the few and still does work even in those places. That in these few, 
whether it was now when Jesus was in Nazareth or later when they came to believe, in them the grace triumphed over unbelief. And that's the hope in which we live, that there is no unbelief over which grace cannot triumph in the end. It's that that Calvin celebrates when he says, what an amazing contest that we who are endeavoring by every possible method to hinder the grace of God from coming to us, it rises victorious and displays its efficacy in spite of all of our exertions. So in the face of unbelief, let's take comfort from these few in whom grace triumphed over unbelief as it has triumphed over unbelief in us. And let us continue to hope and as we're able, share the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let everyone here who hears him and has the privilege of hearing his call listen to what he says to us all. Do not be disbelieving. Repent of your sins. Believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for by believing you'll have life in his name and rest for your souls. May we all find that together. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the gospel of your Son. How thankful we are to know that when we struggle with those who do not believe who we desire to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can look to this and know that our Lord can sympathize with us even in that suffering, can know what it is to speak to those who are nearest and dearest and have them not believe. We pray that we would take seriously the consequences of unbelief that we see laid out in this passage, not wanting to leave our Savior amazed by the privileges that we've spurned, but rather that we'd take comfort from the fact that there were a few faithful even in that hardened place, and there were a few more who were added to your people, and that over the course of the application of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church has grown in our day, to a wonderful number of millions and in the billions, that through the few added by the working of the gospel and the spirit of your Son, the church will become a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that no one can number. And when that just happens a few at a time, we pray we would not despair, but we would still see that as a triumph of grace over unbelief. And when we continue to lift our unbelieving friends and our relatives and those of our own household up to you, and we pray that you would be merciful and save them and show that same mercy to them that you've been pleased to show to us who are undeserving people. We thank you for your grace and its power. We know that there would be no hope for us without it, and we praise your name for it. And hear us.